The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning, Westway. Uh, my name's Cody Peterson. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if I haven't had the chance to meet you, um, we've been here about six months now back here at Westway. And there are still, as I look around, faces that I do not recognize which seems crazy, but it's a blessing. And that's because we've had some guests, some new people here over the course of the last few months. And uh, if I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, I would love to meet you. And I'll be standing right down here after the service is over. And I'd love it if you would just come and introduce yourself to me, um, help me put names to faces and um, reconnect with some of you and connect with some of you for the first time. I would just love that. Today, we're going to continue on our Christmas series, and this series um, is called Foretold, or Fulfilled. I can't remember which one. I always got the two confused, but basically what we're doing is we're looking through the story that Matthew told in his gospel, and if you notice, there's a lot of places in that story where Matthew refers back to an Old Testament prophecy. And uh, what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks is looking at Matthew's account and then going back and diving a little deeper into uh, the quotes that he took from the Old Testament. And last week, John introduced this series to us, and he looked at the prophecy that Matthew quoted out of Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9 and why that was not only important to the people that Matthew was writing to directly, but what that meant to the people in the Old Testament that were reading the scriptures that he referred to. And on top of that, one of the great things about the Bible is that it's living and active still today and that we can take those very things that were written and they still apply to us in our lives today. And if you missed last week or any week, um, you can always catch up by listening to our audio podcast. We record all of the sermons and then put them um, out on the internet through various different um, apps that you can listen to podcasts with. So if you want to, if you have a favorite, whether it's the Apple podcast or Spotify or anything like that, you can search for Westway Christian Church. And if it's one of the ones that, that we are sending our podcasts out to, then you can listen to the sermon through that. Or you can also get on YouTube and find the Westway Christian Church YouTube channel. And all of the, the sermons with the worship, our entire 1015 service Those are all archived through YouTube, so you can go back and catch up what you missed from the past couple weeks. We also have uh, these little cards out in the lobby. They have that graphic on the back, and if you want to, if you're uh, one of the students in class that always likes to, to work ahead, not me. I was the one that always put things off to the last minute. Um, but if you're one that wants to work ahead and read ahead, what we've done is we went through and uh, listed all of the scriptures that we're going to be talking about through the next couple weeks, and you can go through and read and work ahead if you would like to do that. So this week we're looking at another prophecy about Jesus that Matthew quoted in Matthew chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles and you want to turn to Matthew chapter 2, go ahead and do that at this time. Also, if you have your phones and have the YouVersion Bible app downloaded, All of the scriptures that we're going to use today are listed in that app as well. So Matthew. Matthew wrote his gospel with a certain audience in mind. It's very similar to like you or I today. If I know not many people do this anymore. 
But some of you in this room might remember taking a piece of paper and a pen and writing out a letter to someone. Some of you in your attic stowed away somewhere might have love letters that you wrote to a significant someone in your life way back when. But all of those times when we write letters today or emails or text messages, we write them with a specific person in mind. And the way that we talk with one person may differ from the way that we talk to another person. And it's kind of similar to that. When Matthew wrote his gospel, he had a certain people in mind that he was trying to communicate. And so the words that he used had special meaning. The, the things that he used to communicate his point connected with those people. It was very intentional in the way he wrote this letter. And Matthew's audience was primarily the Jewish people. And you can see that throughout Matthew's gospel, there's a lot of inclusion and concern for fulfillment of the Old Testament writings. In fact, you see that from the very beginning. If you open up to Matthew, the very first chapter is a genealogy. It's those things that we go through and skip a lot of times when reading because we can't pronounce all the names. There's a reason why Matthew included that genealogy, and it's because it pointed from Abraham all the way through to Jesus. And one of the things that Matthew wanted to do was make it a point to trace Jesus' lineage back through King David's line and all the way back to Abraham, showing that it was through Jesus that God is fulfilling these covenant promises that he gave to Abraham and he also gave to David. And so there's a reason that Matthew laid out his gospel the way he did. He's communicating a specific point to a specific people. And he goes on to do all of those things by showing how much Jesus, through his birth, his life, and his ministry, fulfilled all of those things that the Old Testament was pointing to through their prophecies. And while I'd love to stand up here today and be able to dive into every single little tiny detail that Matthew is talking about in these 12 verses that we're going to read today, the reality is, as John mentioned um, when we were going through our Judges series and through Revelation and many of the other topics that we talk about, is that we have a set amount of time that we have on a Sunday morning. And it's not possible to be able to get through everything that we would love to talk about during the 1015 So one of the things that we try to do as pastors and and, uh, elders here at Westway is give you as many tools as possible to fill in the blanks on your own. And this is why small groups are so important because they give us another venue to dig deeper into the, the Bible and the topics that we're talking about and discuss them with other people so that we can learn and grow together. So I'm gonna do a shameless plug here. If you're here and you're not involved in a small group, We would love to get you plugged into a small group. There are groups that meet almost every single night of the week, and we would love to find a night and a group that works with you. So if you're here and you're not in a small group, I want to encourage you to talk to John, talk to myself, talk to Pastor Joe, any one of the elders, and we could help you get plugged into a small group to enhance this journey that we're all going through through the Scripture and help us all learn and grow together. So today... We're going to be in Matthew 2, and I'm going to read the first 12 verses this morning. It says this, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. 
About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem, asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose. We have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they said, For this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you, who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them that the and he learned from them the time when the first star appeared. Then he told them, Go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. So there are a few things that I want to make sure that I mention this morning. The first thing is that I want to take a look at the Old Testament prophecies that Matthew quotes here, and then I want to briefly take a look at, into the storyline of Herod. But I say briefly because Joe next week is going to be preaching more on that topic, so I don't want to step on his toes too much. He says amen. <laughs> and then the last thing I want to do and the main focus for my message this morning is talk from the perspective of the wise men and look through at their journey to find Jesus. So first, the prophecies. I loved last week when John mentioned the word hyperlink. And for me, in my millennial mind, that clicked. And uh, I think it's really cool that we have tools to be able to, whether we're on the internet, some things have hyperlinks that we can simply click it and it'll automatically take us to more information on the topic. But one of the things that I love is if you have a study Bible, most study Bibles, well, all study Bibles, and in fact, this Bible that's not a study Bible, if you look in the, fo the footnotes, it will have references to different scriptures. So as we look through and see these different prophecies, we can look through and see that in chapter 2, verse 6, there are references to Micah 5.2 and 2 Samuel 5.2. And these are a really great way for us to look at this and say, what exactly is Matthew talking about? Like, why would he use 2 Samuel 5.2 and Micah 5.2 in reference to Jesus being born? Like, what's the significance of these two passages? And so we can look back and look up 2 Samuel 5.2. And this is what it says. And I'm going to give us a little bit broader context and read verses 1 through 5. David becomes king in all of Israel is the heading here. Then the tribes of Israel went to David at Hebron and told him, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past when Saul was our king, 
you were the only one, or you were the one who really led the forces of Israel. And the Lord told you, you will be shepherd of my people Israel. You will be Israel's leader. So there's the reference to what Matthew talked about. But it goes on to say, So there at Hebron, King David made a covenant before the Lord with all the elders of Israel, and they anointed him king of Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years in all. He had reigned over Judah from Hebron for seven years and six months, and from Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah for 33 years. So this prophecy, when we read those words in 2 Samuel, is talking about who? David. King David being anointed as king over Israel. Now, most of you probably know the story of David from when he was a boy. The prophet Samuel came to his house and went to his dad, Jesse, and said, I need to see all your sons. And so Jesse started parading them in one by one, and it was Samuel's job to anoint the new king of Israel. And so they started with the oldest and went down through the list, and God kept telling Samuel, nope, not him, he's not the one. And it got to the point where they had gone through almost all of Jesse's sons, and Samuel looked at him and said, God said no to all of these, do you have any more kids? And Jesse said, well, actually, we do have one more, but I didn't deem him important enough. This is my paraphrase, of course. I didn't deem him important enough to bring him in to show you. He's out in the field watching after the sheep. And so they call out for David. He comes in, and God says, yes, this is the one. And uh, Samuel anointed him in that, at that time, but then David wasn't immediately made king. He had to kind of wait his turn because Saul was king. And so if you go back and read the story, you can see how David kind of rose into prominence. You know the story of how he killed Goliath. You know the story about how he led God's armies of Israel to battle, about the conflict that he had with Saul and Saul's jealousy about his friendship with Jonathan, Saul's son. You can kind of see the path of David And then we get to 2 Samuel. And uh, I want to encourage you, if you want to dig deeper into this, this is actually really cool to go back and read. You see the the process of David, after Saul's death, being made king, but it was kind of done in two parts. He was made king over the southern kingdom first, and then he actually had to go and conquer the the northern kingdom And he was anointed twice, once to be king of the southern kingdom kingdom, and once to be king of all of Israel, which is what we just read. So if you want to go deeper into this, turn to 2 Samuel and read the first seven chapters that we're not going to talk about all of this morning. But that's the context. This prophecy is talking directly about David. So why was this important to Matthew? Why was this what they quoted back to King Herod predicting the birth of Jesus. It says the word, one of your descendants. Connecting Jesus to David's line. And if you go back and and look at the genealogy, you see that from Abraham all the way through to David, all the way through to Jesus. Matthew really, really wanted to make that connection to his Jewish believers. Because if you trace back, Abraham was 
the patriarch. He was the father, the one that God made a covenant with and promised that he will make his, him into a great nation. And that's what he did, and that was fulfilled through Jesus. He also said the phrase, I will be his father. Connecting Jesus to deity as God's son. Another interesting thing from this is that the term shepherd from 2 Samuel 5-2 is used many times to describe leading or ruling over a people. So just like a shepherd looks out and cares for his sheep, the king was meant to look out and care for and rule over and shepherd his people. All of these things point to Jesus. Let's look at Micah chapter 5. It says, Mobilize, marshal your troops. The enemy is laying siege to Jerusalem. They will strike Israel's leader in the face with a rod. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, are only a small village among the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel, whose origins are in the distant past, will come from you on my behalf. So that verse 2 is what's referenced in Matthew. He goes on to say, The people of Israel will be abandoned to their enemies until the woman in labor gives birth. Then at last his fellow countrymen will return from exile to their own land, and he will stand to lead his flock with the Lord's strength and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Then his people will live there undisturbed, for he will be highly honored around the world, and he will be the source of peace. When the Assyrians invade our land and break through our defenses, we will appoint seven rulers to watch over us, eight princes to lead us. They will rule Assyria with drawn swords and enter the gates of the land of Nimrod. He will rescue us from the Assyrians, and they will pour over the borders to invade our land. See, Micah here is referring to Jerusalem falling. And we know by looking back through history that we see different nations at different points in times come and conquer God's people and then take them out into exile. If you look back through the Old Testament, you see that with the Babylonians, you see that with the Persians. And those, one of those was probably who, what Micah was referring to there. He mentions Bethlehem Ephaphra. And I found it interesting as I was reading through some different commentaries, the need for him to clarify that. You see, there were different Bethlehems located all throughout the region. And when people heard that word Bethlehem, it's like when you hear the word Springfield. Like there's a Springfield in Nebraska, there's a Springfield, Illinois. How do you know exactly which Springfield we're talking about? So he clarified exactly which Bethlehem he was talking about. It was the one just south of Jerusalem, a small village. And he mentioned a ruler that was going to be born there. So why did Matthew refer back to Micah here? It's similar to why he quoted the Second Samuel passage. One of my college professors Every year around this time, he writes a blog and kind of goes through Advent and talks about the significance of some of the things. And I wanted to share with you uh, something from his blog talking about Bethlehem. He said, Ancient Bethlehem was a small village about six miles south of the walls of Jerusalem and its temple. 
Although this was less than a two-hour walk away, Bethlehem was a rural place compared to the urban Jerusalem. Bethlehem's residents were peasants, farmers, shepherds, with a few small-time business owners and shopkeepers. Jerusalem was a wealthy city with aristocratic Sadducees and their massive houses and estates. Why, then, is Bethlehem so important in the Bible? And he says there are three overlapping reasons. The first, humble Bethlehem was the home of the patriarch Jesse and his sons. A thousand years before the birth of Jesus, the Lord sent the prophet Samuel to Jesse's house to designate one of his sons as the next king of Israel. That son was David, the most successful and beloved of all the kings of Israel. God made an eternal covenant with David, a promise that one of his descendants would sit on his throne forever. And this is the basis of the expectation of the coming Messiah, recognized by Christians as Jesus the Christ, the true son of David. Second, the connection with David led to a prophetic prediction that the future Messiah, when he came, would be born in Bethlehem. This is the conclusion of the great scholars of Jerusalem commanded by King Herod to identify the place where the new king of the Jews was to be born. These students of scripture cite Micah 5 that foretells a ruler to shepherd Israel coming from Bethlehem. Third, this prophesied and longed for Messiah was born in Bethlehem under circumstances that can only be understood as providential. He was the son of Joseph and Mary, common folk, from Nazareth, a village many miles to the north. Joseph was not a resident of Bethlehem, but he journeyed there with his young pregnant wife, Mary, fortuitously making Bethlehem the place of Jesus' birth. So we have kingdom, prophecy, and birth, all three coming from Bethlehem. And all of this took faith, trust in God, Samuel trusted God that David was the choice to be the next king, even though he seemed to be least out of all of the brothers and ill-suited. Micah prophesied a glorious future for Bethlehem, even though it was not a prominent city, just a humble village. And Joseph and Mary traveled to Bethlehem despite Mary being great with child, an act of faith on the part of both parents. It's important for us to, to look back and get this broader context. To see exactly why these prophecies were written in their original context. And there's probably a lot more that we could dig into in both of the Second Samuel verse and the Micah verse. But all of those things led up to what Matt, the point that Matthew was trying to get across. Back to Matthew. We read those things, and Matthew gives us two examples of how we can react to those. The first I'm just going to spend a little bit of time on, like I said, that was Herod. So Jesus was born during the reign of King Herod. And it says, About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem. And they went to Herod asking him where the king was. And instantly, the mind of Herod, I imagine, started to turn. Like, in his mind, he was the king. What are you talking about? What king? Who is going to challenge my rule and my throne? And we see responses from Herod in two verses. In verse 3, it says, Herod was deeply disturbed as was everyone else in Jerusalem. 
as I was on Facebook over the last couple weeks, um, someone from the body here at Westway posted a screenshot of these verses and asked the question and said, I was reading through this and something stuck out to me that I had never seen before. And it was that phrase that Herod was deeply disturbed, but more than that, everyone else in Jerusalem. I'm not going to answer that question today. But I think Joe's going to talk more about that next week. But isn't that what it's all about? Like as we read through the scripture, there are things that may stick out to us. It doesn't matter if we've read it 10 times, 20 times, 100 times. It could be the 105th time and something sticks out and causes us to question, well, why is this the case? And I want to encourage you, anytime you see something like that in scripture, click that hyperlink. Figure out what that means. Dive into the context surrounding what Matthew was talking about and ask those questions because that's how we learn and grow. Herod was deeply disturbed, as was everyone else in Jerusalem. Now, I know a little bit, I can assume why Herod was disturbed at that. And without getting into too great of detail, Jesus was a threat. Jesus was a threat to everything that Herod had and everything that he wanted to continue to have. Power, position, prominence. So because Jesus was a threat, we get to verse 7. It says, Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the, first, when the star first appeared. Then he told them, Go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him. Now that's not why Herod wanted to find the child, as we're going to find out next week. So what were Herod's motives to find Jesus? I think Herod was motivated, number one, out of fear. Fear because he had all the control that he could have ever wanted. He had position, he had favor with the Roman government. And this new king was coming in to take that all away. You see, the common thought back then was that this king, the Messiah, was going to come and restore peace to Israel and overthrow the Roman government and reestablish Israel in its prominence the way that God had wanted it to be. That they would be free from um, any threat, that they would be free from anyone overseeing or ruling over them. And Jesus, in Herod's mind, was a threat to that rule. So stay tuned. And if you want to work ahead, go ahead and read Matthew 2, 13 through 23 for next week. And the last thing I want to mention this morning is just the journey of the wise men. The wise men or magi are often associated with the Christmas story. In fact, when you buy a nativity set, they come alongside Mary, Joseph, and the shepherds and baby Jesus. And most of the things that we say about these wise men or magi are just based on traditions but traditions can be wrong. For one, many times we place them at the manger, even though as we read through the Bible, in those verses we just read, it said that they came later on. There was a reason why Herod needed to pinpoint when they first saw the star. 
And there's a reason why, as you're going to find out next week, he put an age limit on the, the young boys that he was going to kill is because there was a time frame there. The wise men didn't necessarily show up to baby Jesus lying in the major, but it was probably later on. Tradition also implies that there were only three magi, but really all that we know for sure is that there were three gifts. The actual number of the magi is never mentioned in the Bible. And sometimes these magi are referred to as kings. In fact, we have songs that we sing called, We Three Kings of Orient Are. Um, this is unlikely. There's no evidence that, that says that they were necessarily kings or that there were three of them. But by looking at these verses, we do know a few things about the Magi. We could discover how they reacted to Christ the baby, the young boy, and how we can do the same. I want to read these verses one more time from start to finish. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign, of, the reign of King Herod. About that same time, wise men from the eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem, asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went their way. And the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route. For God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. So who were them, these wise men, and what do we know about them? Number one, we know that they were from the east. The Magi lived far away from Jerusalem, somewhere east of there, perhaps in Persia or southern Arabia. And the Persian Empire was around modern-day Iran. So this journey that they went on wasn't just a hop in the car and drive three hours. It wasn't a quick journey by foot or camel, and it would have taken them months to get to Jerusalem. Number two, we also know that they were Gentiles and pagans. And we know this for a few reasons. The Magi were astronomers, meaning that they were experts in studying the stars. And if a star appeared in the sky, most common people probably wouldn't notice, but those who really studied the stars would. It's similar to the way that I track weather. I get on my phone, and the weatherman tells me what's going to happen. And that's how I know that things are changing. There was a group of pagan priests in the area of Persia around the time of Christ's birth, and historians say that these priests were often known as magi. They were known for their scientific studies, which led to the worship of the stars, planets, and nature. Also, this word magi is used in other places in scripture to refer to magicians and idol worshipers. The same word is translated in Acts 13 as 
sorcerer. In Acts 9, Simon's referred to as a sorcerer or magi who do magic to bring attention and power to himself. You also know that there were Gentiles and pagans by looking at the questions they were asked. A proper Jew would know where the Messiah was supposed to be born, but instead of going to Bethlehem, where did they show up? Jerusalem. Which makes sense, though, when you think about it, because they figured a king would be born in the capital city. Also, a Jew would have referred to him as their king, not just the king, or the one born king of the Jews. So what did these pagan idol worshipers do? They sought after the king. The Old Testament scriptures foretold a Messiah that would come to save the world. The news of a king coming from from the Jews spread throughout the world, even to pagan countries. And if you remember, a lot of these Jewish people were taken out of their land and brought into exile. And so these stories of the Jewish traditions and faith would have spread even to places like Persia and Babylon while they were in exile. The bright star appeared over Judea. These magi who studied the skies saw the star as a sign, and they had never seen anything like it before and realized that something special just happened. So they decided that this king must have arrived. They, the wise men, had idolized these stars and studied them and made them into gods. But the cool thing is that God used the stars to lead them to the true king. Now remember, this wasn't just a a short day trip to grandma's house, but this trip would have taken these wise men months through desert regions, and they would have faced hardship. They would have had to leave most of their belongings behind And the the wise men could have said, if such a great king is born, we're going to hear about it in our own land. We don't need to travel to Jerusalem to see this king in person. But no, they were determined to make the trip themselves, to see this new king. And they decided that this long journey to seek after him was worth it. When they arrived in Jerusalem, the Magi probably expected to find all of Jerusalem worshiping at the feet of this new king. But instead, they entered a city that didn't even know there was a new king. They found out that the new king was to be born in Bethlehem, not Jerusalem, just five miles south. And so they headed toward Bethlehem. The star stopped over the place where the child was, and the Bible says that they were filled with joy. They went to the house And what they found wasn't royalty. They didn't find a big giant castle or palace. They found Mary and Joseph and Jesus. And Jesus probably wasn't what they expected, but when they found him, it says they were overjoyed that they had found the Messiah. And they bowed down and worshiped and offered gifts. So today... I pause and I ask myself that same question that the Magi did. Why do I want to find Jesus? Why should you want to find Jesus? Is he worth it? Is seeking Jesus worth the struggles and the difficult choices that we make? 
You see, we can choose to follow our own ways. We can choose to leave behind all the things that we seek after and follow Jesus. The Magi were willing to travel hundreds of miles by foot and camel and see the Christ child, and yet we aren't even willing to spend a few minutes with him each day sometimes. Seeking and finding Jesus, the king, led the Magi to do three things. The first thing they did is they presented themselves to Jesus. It says they bowed down and worshiped at the feet of the king. They humbled themselves before the Lord in worship. When they came into the presence of the king of kings, they fell on their face before him. And we often think of magi coming with gifts, but I think it's also important to realize that before they offered their gifts to the, the baby, they bowed down and worshiped and offered themselves It reminds me of a scripture in Romans 12 that we talk about often here. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy and grace, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. It tells us that true worship is giving ourselves more than our money, more than our time, offering ourselves. God wants our hearts. The Magi first presented themselves to Jesus, and then they presented their gifts. They gave him the most precious items that they probably had, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, we all know what gold is, a precious metal and a valuable stone. But frankincense was from a plant, and it was used in perfumes as a medicine and as incense in religious ceremonies. And myrrh comes from small, thorny trees and is used as a spice, medicine, or cosmetic, and was often used in the process of embalming. All three of these gifts were very valuable. And these wise men didn't hold back, but they gave God their best. They could have given Jesus something less expensive, something less meaningful, but they didn't. God wants our offerings as well. He wants our heart. He wants our best. So I ask the question, what are the things that we can give God? We talk about serving so often here at Westway. There are so many ways that we can offer ourselves in service to the king. Giving offerings to him. I think about the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4, where it says, Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil, and in the course of time Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked down with favor with favor on Abel and his offerings, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was angry and his face was downcast. In this story, both brothers gave to God, but only one gift was deemed worthy and pleasing to God. It wasn't because God preferred sheep to vegetables. It was because Abel gave his best and Cain gave his leftovers. So Jesus deserves our best. Is that what we are offering to him? And then the last thing that the wise men did is they were changed by Jesus. They bowed down in in worship, they offered him their gifts, and they walked away from that experience changed. Instead of returning the way they came, the Magi changed directions and went home a different way. Because when you come into contact with God, When you come into God's presence, there's no way that you can leave unchanged. 
And if you really want to worship God, you leave changed. When Moses encountered God at the burning bush, it changed him. When David danced before the ark, it changed him. When Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, it changed him. The shepherds who worshiped the Christ child walked away changed. They went and told other people what they had experienced instead of just returning to their sheep. And here we see the wise men walked away different. They listened to the voice of God and returned a different way home instead of going back to Herod. Seeking God will change you. So what does that mean for us today? I think if we look at these verses that we just read, there are two great examples of people that were seeking to find Jesus. Herod's motives to find Jesus was to eliminate a potential threat and keep his power. They were selfish. The wise men's motives were to bow down in worship. They were looking to see where this star was taking them so that they could bow down and worship the king. So what is your motive to find Christ? Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian and you're skeptical. I want to encourage you to consider starting your own journey to find Jesus today and seeking out what that looks like in your life, much like the wise men did. And maybe you're here today and you do call yourself a Christian and just need a reminder to refocus your life around Jesus. As you leave today, we're going to hand out a little star. There it is. How many of you had stars like this hanging on your ceiling when you were little? Or maybe you had kids that did? The wise men followed the star and it led them to where Jesus was. And as you leave today, there are going to be stars just like this one out at the Welcome Center. And I want to encourage you to take one as a reminder of the journey that you were on to find Christ. The wise men saw this star and followed it, and it led them to Jesus. They embarked on a journey that changed them. And as we take these stars, my hope is that they will be a reminder for us not just of the fact that Jesus was born. As John said last week, like we get into this Christmas spirit because uh, it's December a lot of times. And sometimes that can lose the significance of why Jesus actually came. So let these stars be a reminder to us, not just of the fact that Jesus was born, but exactly what his birth means for us today. One of the verses that John read last week from Isaiah 9 I'm just going to read a small portion of that. In verse 2, it talks about people who walk in darkness. It says, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. And as you read down, you realize that they're talking about Jesus. Jesus was born, Emmanuel, God with us, to be a light that shines in the darkness. And we are called to do the same. And I hope that you'll take a star when you leave and keep it somewhere that you see it often and use it as a reminder of who Jesus is and the journey that he's invited each and every one of us to be on with him. And as we celebrate Christmas and prepare for a new year, I want to challenge you to listen to the message of the Magi, to seek after Christ, to worship him by giving him your heart and your life, and to offer him your best, and allow him to change you. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, I'm so thankful for the fact that you sent Jesus. God, I'm thankful that, that you sent him to earth as a baby, that he grew up and grew into a man and lived a perfect life. And Father, all of those things happened because of your plan that you set in place. That you sent Jesus to this earth ultimately for us to die a death that he didn't deserve so that we could receive a prize that we didn't deserve. So Father, my prayer today is that you would help me to remember that. As we celebrate the birth of Jesus during this Christmas season, Father, help us to always remember why he came and not to get lost in the, the pageantry of it all, but to remember that you had a plan from the start. Father, help us to remember that plan. It's in your name I pray, amen.